0: Song of Solomon, the first chapter. If you can find the book of Isaiah, it's just a little bit to the left of that, or the Psalms and Proverbs, a little bit to the right of that, the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is a notoriously difficult book to know where the, the breaks of the text are, so we'll simply uh, follow the ones that were given for us and read the first chapter this morning. As I do so, I'll remind you that this is indeed the very word of God. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. The others say, we will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. She says, I am very dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons are angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, for why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flock of your companions? He says, if you do not know, most beautiful long woman, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. Others say, we will make for you ornaments of gold, studded with silver. She says, while well, the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Vingeti. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. She says, behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beam of our house, beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. This is indeed God's holy and inerrant word given for us. For our edification and our growth. In grace and love for Christ. Let us pray that it would be used for that end. Heavenly Father, we thank you indeed for your word. Delivered so many centuries, indeed millennia ago, but yet speaking to us this morning through your spirit. And through the words of this humble preacher, may you take those words in my mouth. And use them for your purposes at this congregation, I pray this morning. I love new books. I'm something of a, a chain smoker, at least when it comes to books. Always, when I'm finishing up one book, I make sure I have my next one already on the, on the shelf to pick up and read. Sometimes, though, you know, I've read so many books in a row, I get a little weary and I don't know if I'll be able to pick up the, the, the large biography or whatever I have next. But I know if I just open it and read, even just like the preface, even the acknowledgments, that'll be just enough to get me hooked. And I'll be able to make my way uh, through the rest of the book. And I think uh, this morning my prayer is if you just read this first chapter of the Song of Solomon, that you'll be hooked, that you'll, you'll desire to get to know this book and to read uh, the rest of it and see what the Lord would have for you in this, in this book. If your attention wasn't grabbed this morning as we read first chapter, you're probably not awake yet. Because these, these aren't perhaps uh, the sort of passages and images we receive most of the time when we read God's word. But yet this, this book is God's word given for us. And it would be my desire that we get to know a little bit about our Heavenly Father and his love for us in Christ. And indeed the love we are to have with each other, particularly in marriage, from the book of, first, or from the, book of the Song of Solomon. Perhaps the easiest way, way to dive in and get to know what is going on in, in these pages of this book is to consider the characters. Uh, we saw this was, this was entirely a, a spoken book. Various characters were singing the, the lines, if you were, written for them. So we have four main characters. You may have noticed though as we went through the first chapter of the Song of Solomon. We begin with the author. Begin first with the author. Then we'll see the, the woman and the man. Those are our, our main characters. And then fourthly, uh, the others, the chorus who sort of pipe in every now and then to give their approval of what is going on in this book. So the author, the woman, the man, and the others, the chorus. We get in verse 1, though, with the author, the song of songs, which is Solomon's. The first thing we have to determine is what does it mean that this is Solomon's? Some people would say this was dedicated to Solomon. The song was given to Solomon. Some would say this was about Solomon. This is a description of something that happened in his own life. But I believe that the most obvious and the most straightforward reading is the right one. And this is the one of Solomon that is Solomon's because he wrote it. Now some would say, how could Solomon write such a beautiful hymn of praise to the glory of of faithful marital love. After all, didn't Solomon have, what, 700 wives and 300 concubines? But remember, Scripture tells us in 1 Kings that Solomon was wiser than all other men. Now, he wasn't wise enough to, to juggle 700 wives well, but he was perhaps wise enough to realize that in the midst of that excess, as the the 1,000 women of his harem led him astray and led him near the end of his life to begin to worship false gods, perhaps he realized where, where true satisfaction lies. Perhaps he realizes where true passion is to be found, not in many, not in a myriad of women, but in one. I see this as an older chastened Solomon, writing for us his greatest song. This is, after all, what song of songs means. Think of the Lord as our King of Kings. There's a lot of kings, but he is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. This is the song of songs. Of all the songs that could be out there, this is the greatest of his songs. And in it, he warns us. He had Monishes us. You can think of Proverbs. He does a similar thing there, particularly Proverbs 5 to 7. He writes as a father speaking to his son about making sure that you are faithful in marriage, doing the same thing here. And this is, of course, what a good king is supposed to do. Uh, The king over the Lord's people was to lead his people in righteousness. He was supposed to demonstrate to them what true faithfulness to the covenant Lord was to look like. Solomon... Failed many times at that. But this is his opportunity to, to show for his people what true faithfulness to one's spouse. the true passion and ardor in marriage is supposed to look like. First Kings tells us that Solomon wrote 1,005 songs. But this one is the one that was inspired of God. This is the one that made its way. Into the sacred canon of Holy Scripture. This is the one that gets its own book of the Bible as the inspired Word of God. And that, of course, reminds us that there's actually not one author of the Song of Solomon, is there? No, there are two. For this is given to us as the very breathed out Word of God. God's Word for us this morning. The Lord Himself wants us to delight and the sort of love pictured for us, and sometimes graphic detail in this book. Now you may blush at times at the imagery, but God placed it here for our edification, for a greater appreciation for love. And as we will see, a greater appreciation of this sort of love is nothing less than a very appreciation of God himself. Father, son, Holy Spirit. Don't miss the fact that the Lord does this by giving us a song. Remember, songs are given to us to shape our emotions. You can tell your life you tell your wife that you love her and she ought to believe her. but if you were to write a song for her and to sing it for her, Hopefully she wouldn't laugh. Hopefully she would be all the more uh, struck by the earnestness of your love for her. Uh, songs of a way of speaking to our very hearts. of Some, some truth that the Lord is seeking to deep, deepen and to drive deep into our hearts, into our very souls. The beauty and indeed the importance of love. So let's consider how the Lord does so by looking at the main characters. The main characters. We've seen Solomon as our first character, but he actually, actually writes for himself only a, a minor role in this, in this song. He's something of a foil, in fact. He, wants, he doesn't really want the folks to be on himself as much, but on this, on this couple that he presents to us. Perhaps a fictive couple, but you would call them an, an idealized depiction of himself in his story. He never comes up and says, this is how my love and romance went. He says, this is how love and romance ought to go. So when, when the ESV headings, for instance, say that this is Solomon and his bride, you can, you can kind of look at that with a squinty eye and say, okay, this, this is how Solomon uh, wants us to, to understand how marriage ought to be. Perhaps not how it was always for him. But a good teacher says, I will show you precisely what marriage is to be, even though you know that at heart of hearts, I am not a perfect man. I, this morning, am not pointing forward to my marriage as a perfect marriage, but pointing to the inspired word of God. So we have first the woman. You notice that the the, the, the driving character of this book is not the man, is, it's the wife. Don't let anyone tell you that uh, Old Testament religion was, was anti, anti-woman or anti-feminine. This, this is a book that is driven from beginning to end by the, by the woman and her words and her actions. The ESV gives us these headings, she and he, etc. Because in Hebrew, you can actually look at, at the endings of words and know who the one is speaking. So, so you have a verb, I ran, I saw, I sat. Any of those words in Hebrew would, would have the, the gender attached to it. So the text never says perhaps who is speaking. We know from the actual words themselves that this is she and he, and so that's given for us to help us keep this straight. And so this woman begins in verse two, and you can tell right away that she is in love. You can t- tell right away that she is enraptured with love for her man. Let, let, let him kiss me. She desires for her, her her mouth to be kissed by her husband. She says, "Your love is better than wine, as sweet." And as rich and as enchanting as the fruit of the vine is, your love is even more so. It says, your anointing oils are fragrant. The, you know, the scent of your very body is an intoxicant to me. Your name is poured out. is oil poured out. That means your reputation is strong. Your, your name is well respected by outsiders. You are a man who is worthy of my love. So it says, therefore, virgins love you. That means you have the esteem. Of all, you have the love of the community saying, "Yes, this is a good match," as we see uh, the chorus saying later. And so, she comes with him in verse four, verse four and says, "Draw me after you. you, know, you let, let us run. Let us go make love together." The king has brought me into his chambers again. This is a, this is a picture. She, we're not, I'm not saying this is actually the king. She's comparing him to the king says, you are to me uh, the ruler of my body, as Paul might say in 1 Corinthians. The man has rule over the woman's body, just as the woman has authority over the man's body. And this might raise the question for us, is this couple married? This is is an interpretive question that some interpreters have. Some say, well, they they don't really get married to the middle of the book. Some interpreters say they don't really get married to the end of the book. But as I read the Solomon, I say, this is a couple that is married now. This is a couple that is celebrating the marital love that they already enjoy. And in fact, delighting in the love that the Lord has given them as man and as wife. See there in verses 5 and 6, she's somewhat abashed by her dark skin. She says, don't gaze at me. I'm dark. But she tells you why. It's not, this isn't some sort of weird you know, racial thing. She's, she has a dark tan, she says. The sun has looked upon me. Now why would she be ashamed of her tan? Well, in that day and age, to have a tan meant that you had to work in the fields. It means that you weren't wealthy and we could stay inside all day. But you actually had to go outside and earn a living. So she's embarrassed that that has to be the case of her But it doesn't mean that she's ugly. (laughs) No, not at all. As we'll see later, her husband is enraptured by her. She says, in fact, my brothers, my mother's sons were angry with me. They made me go outside and work the vineyards. But of my own vineyard, referring to her own body, she says, I have not kept. I've spent more time tending to the, the, the leaves of the vineyard outside than taking care of my own body. She said, don't look at me. But we know that she's being coy. You know that that's exactly what she wants. Uh, She's perhaps, you know, being teasing and joking with her lover. Because what does she want, verse 7? She says, tell me where I can find you. (laughs) She says, let's have a midday siesta where you make it to lie down at noon, where you have a break. I want to be with you. Why should I be like one who veils herself besides the flock of your companions? In other words, I'm the only one who has the right to come and find you that time of day. And to lie with you. And we see, despite her abashment of, of, her, of her dark skin and the fact that she has to work outside, we see how her husband affirms her, don't we? Beginning in verse eight. Look at these words that he speaks over her. She says, "If you don't know, to follow me. For you're the most beautiful among women." Just come and find me. I'll tell you where I'm going to be. I'm going to be beside the young goats, beside the shepherd tents. We learn here that not only does she tend the vineyard, but she tends goats. This was actually a, a, a sort of a, a, a characteristic or, or a prototype of a certain woman in that day and age—one who was innocent, one who was hardworking. One who was worthy of esteem from the shepherds as the keeper of goats. Now we today, as husbands, might not compare our wives to horses, as he does in verse 9. <laughs> but think about it. An animal that is strong yet sleek. You, you see a fine, well-proportioned horse, you know, racing or pulling load, you say, Yeah, that is a creature that is doing what God created it to do. It is beautiful. It is sleek. It is well-colored, well-proportioned. Uh, Be decked with jewels, verse 10. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with a string of jewels. This is actually a high compliment. that The man is paying to his wife to compare her to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Pharaoh would have had the finest horses in all the world. He said, that is nothing compared to you and to your beauty. And, and to your fitness, to your strength. So she comes to his bed, verse twelve, his couch, as it's called. Again, comparing him to a fine king, in his chambers. We see what does she what does she mean by comparing by speaking of his chambers? What so we saw later in verses sixteen and seventeen. She means outdoors. Our couch is green. The beams of our houses of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. You can picture them in an arbor. You picture into a, a secluded place covered by trees where they could be together. This, this Is a picture of of the stability of their love? That that which is covering them, that which is protecting them, are cedars and pines, fine trees, the finest of trees in that day and age. You either had scraggly little. Joshua-type trees or the desert, or you had fine tall pines and cedars, and she said, "Our place is that sort of place. It is well built to last, to be strong. Whatever comes against us as we are together as man and wife, we will be protected." And again, we see her, we see her uh, en- enraptured by, by the aroma of his body in verses 12 and 14. As my nard gave forth its fragrance, my beloved to me is like a sachet of myrrh that lies between her breasts, to me a cluster of hida blossoms, and the vineyards of Vengeti, nard being a costly oil, worthy of their love, myrrh being a costly resin that you might put on heat so that it would cast its aroma, like scented flowers from the royal vineyards of Vengeti, which was an oasis, Near the Dead Sea. And as this happens, verse 15, you see the man staring into her eyes. As he gazes into her eyes amidst their lovemaking, he is entranced, is he not? He said, You are beautiful. Your eyes are doves, I'm referring to the, the fine oval shape that was highly prized in thought culture. I mean, I guess you could make this text out to mean that they're not yet married, but I don't think that does justice to the richness of the imagery and the passion that they obviously are sharing with each other. And we know we actually receive affirmation in the text that we can think of the love in this way because our last group of characters approves. Our last group of characters approves, does it not? We see this chorus. You see this chorus uh, piping up here and there to, to affirm the love between this man and this woman. First in verse 4, they say what? They say, we will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Rightly do others approve of this match. For it is good and right for this couple to be together, to be married, to be in love. And then in verse 11, they, they demonstrate their approval by crafting ornaments of gold and silver to imitate the sort of ornaments that were worn at a wedding without culture. And as Solomon writes this, not only are we to be enraptured and entranced and to be drawn in by the love between the man and wife, we're also to join this course in approving of this love and in lauding this love that we see shared by this couple. but perhaps perhaps we're also supposed to be taken aback in one sense and the sense is this perhaps we are to wonder where does where does such love come from uh, can, can a man and a woman really love each other this purely this this deeply this truly this this in one sense, innocently, but in, in one sense, fully in soul and in body. Perhaps more pointedly, can I experience this love? Can we experience this love? If we are married, then our marriage is now. If we are unmarried someday in the future, is this truly possible? You know, there are so many applications we could take and run with in this book. But we must start here wondering where and how is such love possible? If it is at all in a culture today in which love making has very little, if at all, to do with actual love. What a misnomer to use a term like making love to refer to casual unmarried sex. Now we know, don't we, from elsewhere in scripture, how we can love. We know that scripture tells us we love because he, that is God, first loved us. And we know, for instance, from the book of Ephesians, that this comes to us in Christ. We know that he has lavishly loved us, the scripture tells us. And so is that the answer? Is that the full answer of where such love comes from? The love that God the Father has for us in Christ. Well, we know that that is And answer. We know that is a key and important understanding of the gospel to know that such love is poured out for us in Christ. But actually, that is not the ultimate source of such love. Did you know there's actually uh, one step before and above before you get to the Father's love for us through Christ? That's the Father's love for His Son. That's the Father's love for the Son. The the, the atmosphere of the Trinity, the electricity, the sparks, the energy that was before we were ever created, before the Father ever set his love on us. He set his love first on his Son. Ephesians, I just mentioned how Ephesians chapter 1 tells us how God loved us in Christ. But in verse 4 of that chapter, Paul tells us that God the Father chose us in Christ. That he loved us in the beloved, which is Christ. He loved us in the beloved, meaning he loved us in the one that he set his love on before we were ever born. Before you and I were ever uh, predestined to be loved. Before you and I were ever uh, marked out uh, for salvation in Christ Jesus. God the Father poured his love on his son. Remember, what, what does scripture tell us? that God is love. But Scripture also tells us that God is three in one. So for there to be three persons in the Trinity, that means that before you and I could ever be the recipient of the Father's love through Christ, that they were the recipients of each other's love. For if God is one and God is love but God is also three in one, then that love must be part of that definition of what it means to be a triune God. Think about, think about what Jesus says at, uh, at the Garden of Gethsemane in his high priestly prayer as he is about to be crucified, as he's about to be hand over, scourged, whipped, punished, crucified for us. He looks to his father in prayer and says What? Let my disciples know that love which you had for me since before the foundation of the world. May that love be in them, and I in them. Jesus prays for that very same prayer that is the very essence of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he prays for that love to be poured out on us. On all those whom the Father loved in Christ. Ever wonder what it means that he loved us in Christ? It means that ultimately, of first priority, of highest order, that love was his love for Christ. It only comes to us because he chose us in him. So if you want to know what what belovedness, to make up a word, looks like, If you want to know what ultimate love is, gaze upon your Savior. Look upon Christ and all his beauty and all his majesty and all his humility and all his purity and all his righteousness and goodness and holiness. Gaze upon Christ and all who he is and you will see love. Love. You will see love that even puts the love of first, of first chapter of Song of Solomon to shame, as it were. As, as a poetic and beautiful as that love is, it pales like a candle before the sun of who Christ is, the one who is love. Paul says something utterly fascinating, at least to me, in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 uh, contains this beautiful prayer that, Christ off- that well Paul offers to Christ for the Ephesians. He prays that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He could have stopped there. That's, that's good, to know the love of Christ, to know that love that the Father gave to the Son that he now gives to us, to know the love of Christ is good. But then he goes on, though, and he says this, that you may be filled... With all the fullness of God. Think about that, friends. To know the love of Christ is to be filled with the fullness of God. The very essence of God is love. Yes, it is truth. Yes, it is justice. Yes, it is righteousness. Yes, it is holiness. But yes, it is love. For theolo- theology tells us that all that is in God is God, including love. That's why Paul can say to know the, to know the love of, of Christ is to know the very fullness of God. So as we gaze upon Christ and his beauty, we are gazing on nothing less than the very definition, the very source, the very kernel of love itself, not love applied, not love illustrated, but love itself. Says so something applying that to us in, in the fifth chapter of Ephesians, he says, be imitators of God and walk in love as Christ loved us. He says to be an imitator of God is to be one that loves. And he noticed his example of that was Christ as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's how we can, as men and women, love, yes, first in marriage, but also in the church, and our children, and our brothers and sisters in Christ. For a fallen world that desperately needs to know the saving knowledge of the love of Christ poured out in his death on that cross. To walk in love is to know Christ, is to be an imitator of God. For before you were even a a spark in your heavenly father's eye, to adapt a metaphor, he was rapturously in love with his son. The atmosphere of the spirit. So, friends, as, as books like, like Song of Solomon and perhaps only like Song of Solomon can do, as they stoke your desire for such love, as they stoke your desire to be loved and to love in that way, know that first it is possible. Otherwise, the Lord would be holding out for us something that was impossible, and he is not that sort of God. Know first that it is possible. Second, know that it is possible only as you, as you revel and bathe and swim and dive in deep in that, that inner Trinitarian love that the Father has for the Son poured out for us. As he gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. For in that offering, in the, in the aroma that Paul says Christ's death was, we're reminded of the aroma of the man and the woman in, in the Song of Solomon and in, in the heat and the sweat and the passion of their ardorous love. Even there, we get a picture of the Father's love for us through Christ. We can delight in him. We can grow in appreciation for who our Savior is as the beloved, the very heartbeat of his Father's existence and therefore the very giver of life and of love to us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for our Savior. We know that he is to us life. We know that he is to us forgiveness. We know that he is to us mercy and atonement and righteousness. But let us never forget why. Father, let us remind the the source is your very love for him. Overflowing, bubbling over trickling down even to us, but not in a trickle, in a flood. May we know that love. May we share that love. May we pour out that love to others. Christ, we pray. Amen.